0: is Casey Ruff, your host of Boundless Body Radio. And today we have another awesome guest that I'm happy to introduce. Dr. Bill Schindler is the director of the Eastern Shore Food Lab at Washington College. He is a specialist in primitive technology who literally lives his work. As a professor, chef, father, and husband, he has traveled the world researching ancestral diets and lifestyles. His website, Eat Like a Human, teaches people how to reclaim the power to feed themselves with the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. He lives with his wife and three kids who call themselves the modern Stone Age family and strive to live and eat like humans again. Um, Bill is somebody i followed for a very long time. Um, I love his content, and as you will see shortly, his enthusiasm um, and passion for his work is just, it's so obvious and shines through. Um, So we are very excited to welcome him on the show. Bill, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Casey. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So I have to ask um, about the family specifically. Um, do they share your enthusiasm with um, living like a human or do they kind of um, come like kicking and screaming <laughs> along with you?
1: <laughs> a, little, a little bit of both. It's great to bring that up because you know that, that idea that um, the name, the modern Stone Age family, really, I think, encapsulates everything about what, what we really are and the way that all of us approach this, um, this idea of, 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 living like a human. So we, you know, we don't live in the middle of a cave in the middle of nowhere on the top of a mountain, somewhere in a little shack. We, we literally live in a, well, we're in a fairly rural area, but we're in a neighborhood. Um, my kids are in soccer and ballet and, and field hockey. We have, uh, you know, my wife and I both have careers. We drive cars, you know, we, we do all of those. We have modern conveniences like ovens and and dishwashers and the like, but we really try our best to fuse together everything we know and have learned and are still learning about how we've uh, lived as humans for hundreds of thousands of years and how we've lived before that. You know, as modern Homo sapiens for 300,000 years, and, and as humans for millions of years, um, and take that information and and make it work, make it accessible and relevant in our modern lives. So we're trying to live our best lives possible uh, while still in 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 understanding that that doesn't, you know, health doesn't just mean is your body fit? You know, do do you, look a certain part? Are you, are you free of, of disease? But it also means all the other mental and and cultural aspects of, of being human. And today that, frankly, that means living in a culture and society that is, is whatever it is, right. We have to, you know, we're trying to raise kids that, that, that can, um, that are integrated in this modern world that can walk amongst everyone in this modern world and still, you know, be as healthy and, and as, as literally as humanly possible. So the name, the, the modern stone age family came the, the London times did an article on the family. Oh, I, I want to say four or five years ago. And that's where, you know, they called us, I think the title of the article was the modern stone age family and that it sort of stu- uh, stuck since that point forward. And I, I do like it because like I said earlier, we all approach this a little bit differently. Um, quite often, it, it, there's almost never a, a time when I do something that I think is incredibly important that at least one member of the family isn't rolling their eyes or, or thinking about something <laughs> in a different way than me. Um, my wife was when we first met was a vegetarian. She's no longer a vegetarian, but she was, um, my oldest daughter will literally try anything because she, uh, you know, has that sort of mental curiosity to try something. But she really doesn't eat a massive amount of meat. My son is a big hunter and fisherman and trapper and all that, so he just he likes to eat the things that he that he himself captures because he under you know he understands that whole cycle of it, but also because he wants to gross his sisters out. Um, my youngest daughter is incredibly picky and my wife grounds me all the time, grounds me in a good way, not like, you know, punishes me. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's a long answer to the, to the question. Um, do we, do they all buy into it? Uh, Yeah. They they buy into the message. They buy into the the movement that we're trying to create, but they all do it in a completely
0: different way. Well, that's, that's yeah, that's so well explained because I think, I think there's this idea of like, if I'm going to be living like a human, that means I need to regress a few, you know, hundred thousand years and, and literally live in a cave. And it is 2020 and we have, you know, iPhones and all kinds of stuff that we need to kind of marry the two together. Um, not necessarily that we need to regress the entire species. Correct. Oh,
1: absolutely. In fact, there's a lot of, I, I can think of a couple of examples um, of this, but I, I don't like hard lines uh, on things like everything before the agriculture revolution was good, everything since then is bad, you know, reading, you know, reading books and texts and those sorts of things are all good, but social media and other ways of getting information out are all bad. You know, those sorts of hard lines on things are, um, I think problematic on a lot of levels and prevents us from taking advantage of wonderful advances that have happened since, um, well, since we first created technologies, Beginning millions of years ago, so you know we struggle. Certainly, there's a there's a there are uh, we're trying to and we read figure it out every day. But we try to negotiate and 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 traverse that line of okay, we have three teenagers in the house who all have iPhones. You know, what do we do with time limits and what things are they allowed to do? What things aren't they allowed to do? What should they figure out on their own? What should we you know make sure you know definite not things to take advantage of, but to say. That to to prevent them in my mind from having access to some incredible information at a moment's notice um, would be doing a disservice. Mm. And it's the same, you know, when we think about diets. There's a lot of people in the ancestral diet community that that have this you know black and white idea of uh, 15,000 years ago. Everything before it was good, right? And everything since then, since agriculture, is bad. And that's not true. There's there's a lot of truth to it, but I also believe that human ingenuity and human spirit has figured out ways of taking things like grains or dairy, which are both products of the agriculture revolution and have found ways to transform them into their safest and most nourishing forms possible. And they just outwardly um, categorize all bread as bad and all dairy as bad really uh, restricts our diets, both in nutritional ways, but also in, in other aspects of eating that are incredibly important to humans when we don't just eat food to nourish ourselves. We eat food to uh, come together and to celebrate and to um, derive a lot of pleasure from the flavors and textures in in, in different kinds of foods. So, um, you know, again, I, I really think it's worth diving deep meant, you know, having these mental exercises where we dive deep into trying to understand things really for what they are. So, You know, it needs, in order for it to work in our modern lives, the solutions that we come up with on an individual basis, on a family-wise basis, on a community-level basis, whatever, need to be relevant, accessible, and meaningful. Mm. And that's really what we're working towards.
0: Wow. No, I really love that. Um, You mentioned technology, and I want to go back a few million years, um, and I want you to tell the story of a species of an animal that wasn't particularly special, but smashed one rock into another and changed the course of that species forever. What what happened? That doesn't seem like a very big deal.
1: Well, you know, I love the way you said that because a species that wasn't that successful, and I'm sure what you're referring to was our own ancestors, um, and we weren't that special. In fact, you know, one thing that's hard for people to really wrap their brains around, but really is the cornerstone of a lot of, the work that I'm doing is that we still aren't that special. There's so many things that we take for granted about ourselves that isn't true, and it really um, uh, plays out when you think about our ancestors. So, you know, to paint the picture, a little bit of, of prehistoric and ancestral background about you know, obviously we're all um, derived from you know we're all primates. All humans are primates, and about somewhere between five and seven million years ago. For nobody really knows why we became fully bipedal. In other words, we realized that you know our our anatomy had changed such that it was more comfortable for us to walk completely upright on two legs than either on four or something in between. Um, And so we're completely bipedal. About five to seven million years ago, we were still living in. Even though we were walking on the ground, we were still living in trees, uh, at night for protection. And we were really, really small compared to modern day humans. So we, a uh, you know, full grown adult was about three and a half feet tall. Our brains were about the size of our fist. Um, so that translates into really low nutritional requirements. And if you think about, if you strip us completely from our technology that we have today, I mean, every single technology we have from the space shuttle down to a simple knife, all of it's gone. And we shrunk our bodies down to that size. And we were supposed to feed ourselves using just our fingers and our nails and whatever muscles we had in our teeth. You can imagine that we'd be really restricted in the amount and the type of food that we could have access to. And if you think about what they were eating at that time, it was a limited amount of wild plants and some insects. That's all That's all we're really eating. Um, the insects of, of the wild plant, insect, You know, diet, the insects were incredibly nutritious compared to um, the leafy greens and whatever fruits they had access to. There was another problem, too. And the other problem is that all plants, all plants, even the domesticated ones, have toxins in them. Right? And we can hopefully in a little while talk more about why that's the case. But it's especially true with wild plants. Some of these toxins aren't a very big deal. Some of them will build up on our bodies over time. Some of us would make us sick or kill us outright with one bite. But all of these, all plants have some level of toxins in them. So it isn't just that, hey, they were eating plants and you know fruits and vegetables and and you know, it's like a big salad bowl out in the savannah for them, there were only limited ones they could eat. And out of those limited ones, they could eat safely. They couldn't eat massive quantities of certain ones of them because they'd make themselves sick. So of that diet, the insects by far were the most nutrient dense and bioavailable aspect of of their diets. Mm. So you can imagine these, these ancestors running around on the savannah and every now and then Uh, and more than every now and then they would witness out on the savannah a massive predator the ancestors to our modern day things like lions for example taking down other animals um ripping them you know which they are biologically designed to do ripping them apart with their canines diving on into the inside of this animal gorging themselves on the blood the fat and the organs and maybe a little bit of the meat then they would go off and to digest this this incredible meal and and that would leave some time for things like the ancestors to modern day buzzards and the ancestors to modern day hyenas and those sorts of animals that are physically equipped to scavenge they would run in and pick flesh off and other things that were left on the carcass but here are our ancestors with these you know really not that strong, their teeth are not designed to rip flesh off of carcasses, their nails are almost completely useless, watching these other animals feast on this meat, and meanwhile they don't have an invitation to the party, right? But about 3.3 million years ago, we have evidence of uh, in in northern Kenya, just west of Lake Turkana, in in a place called Lamekwe, we have evidence for at least one of our ancestors striking together two rocks of the right material. And even though it took literally billions of years to get to that point, in less than a second, when they struck these two rocks together, they created for the first time a tool. And it may not seem like much, because after all, it's just two rocks you know, banging together. But what happened in that moment was transformative and laid the groundwork for every single technology our ancestors and ourselves created and continue to create in, in the world. And what, what they did when they struck these two rocks together is they produced a flake. And the flake, the resulting flake, and in this case is about the size of, of our hand, had a razor sharp edge almost all the way around the outside that was not only sharp, but incredibly durable. And with this knife, they overcame for their first time ever their own physical limitations and could interact with the outside world in entirely new ways. And for this, in this case, that meant they could now join that party, and they did. We have evidence of it almost exactly the same time of butchered animal remains, uh, where you know our human or our, our osteopithecine ancestors were running in after a predator had killed an animal, gorge itself on the inside, and they were hacking off huge pieces of meat that they could bring back to their their families, their clans, whatever, share with people that couldn't be out there, share with the elderly or the sick or the young. And um, it was the first time ever our ancestors, again, overcame their physical limitations and could access a nutrient from their environment, and in this case, an incredible nutrient um, that they otherwise wouldn't have access
0: to. Mm. Wow, that's so interesting. So this, this is, I think, an overlooked point that... You know, if 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 you're a human and you don't get the first you don't get your first choice, you have to run in after some of these other animals have have eaten their fill and you get whatever's left. I'm guessing there's a difference in the quality of what you can choose if you're the one that gets the first choice. Is that is that safe to say?
1: No, 100 percent. And it's very, very important to note that you know before they were able to access the scavenge carcasses on the savannah, they were insectivores, frugivores, and herbivores. They were gatherers, right? So think about foraging. They were gathering wild plants and insects to eat. When they created this tool and now had access to meat, they weren't hunters. They didn't become hunter-gatherers. They became scavenger-gatherers, which is a huge difference from hunter-gatherers. So at this moment, we'll say for for this conversation, about three and a half million years ago, they created a tool, could go out, and they were they, what they accessed from those carcasses on the savannah was the meat that was left over from after a predator made a kill and ate everything it wanted so we had the leftovers now i know this is so much and i'm glad you brought this up so much different than the way we think about eating animals today when most of us think about eating animals today we think about meat i mean it's a default are we going to eat chicken yeah well that automatically means chicken breast or chicken thighs Are you going to eat pork? Well, all of a sudden that means like bacon or pork loin or sausage or something like that. If you're going to eat beef, it means a T-bone steak. But that's not the way that these predators thought about eating animals. In fact, and we know this by watching the behavior patterns of modern predators, when a predator takes another animal down, almost always the first thing it does is it gorges itself on the fat, the blood, and the organs on the inside and quite often it will then leave the carcass full of its meat for other animals to have access to or it will leave it for a while and come back and eat some of that meat but regardless that you know it's it's intentional that they ate the blood the fat and the organs and it's no surprise because the blood the fat and the organs are the most nutritious part of the animal and it's also the most bioavailable part of the animal in other words not only does it have you know, more than just protein in it. It's got all sorts of incredible nutrients that, that their bodies and in fact, our bodies need, but it gives up that nutrition easily to our bodies. So when we eat it, we really don't even have to do anything to it, right? We eat it. Now we, 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 we do many of us cook things like cook liver, make pâtés and things, but that's not for a nutritional reason. We, we, we could eat the raw liver and get just as much nutrition from it without having to do anything else. So, um, that's what's happening at three and a half million years ago. That's what our ancestors didn't all of a sudden have access to the entire animal. They had access to what was left over after the animal that killed that animal got to feast on it. It isn't until another million and a half years, about two million years ago, that we have – cap- our ancestors have the capability of hunting. And when we start hunting, we become the predators and when we become the predators that means we have first access to that most nutritious part of that animal the blood the fat and the organs and also the meat and the marrow you know, and all, all that as well that we had already so things change when we begin hunting that's the two things happened at around 2 million years ago that are incredibly transformative for our, our diets which in turn are incredibly transformative for our bodies and brains one is we developed hunting technology which gives us first access to the most nutritious and bioavailable parts of the animal the second thing is that we develop control of fire and that allows us to cook our food, which helps release nutrients, create uh, break food down, makes food more safe, all those other sorts of things. Um, and it is at 2 million years ago that we see the biggest jump in body and brain size that we see, you know, in our, in our evolutionary past, we become almost modern homo sapien in proportions at that time.
0: Mm, wow. I read a book about that, um, a few years ago called catching fire. Um, that hypothesized that it it was the act of cooking itself that that helped transform our brains and give us a bigger brain size, um, and help us break down some of the calories that we could then consume, and then and then we would need to eat all day. We could eat and then go do other things. Um, it it do I have that right?
1: Absolutely. That was that was Richard Richard Rangham's book, correct? Yep, that's right. Yeah. Well, first of all, Richard Rangham is amazing, and his work is so important to understanding our, our ancient dietary past and how it translated into nutrition for our bodies. And yeah, it, it, absolutely. So he's the, the date of 2 million years on control of fire is a very early date. It's hotly contested. Uh, Richard Wrangham, myself, um, and some other people believe in that early date. I wholeheartedly believe in it. And, but what he, what he's suggesting, and, and I, again, I agree with this as well, is that that control of fire, especially with regards to meat, Allows that meat to release more nutrition, but also with plants. You know, plants are not—we're not put on this earth to feed us. Plants are on this earth to do one thing, like every other animal, to reproduce viable offspring, so they they can continue the species. And what we need to understand is, and one reason why I always pair a sentence that says nutrient density with the comment bioavailability with it is because both of those things are important to ensuring that we actually are getting the nutrients we need from our food. Just because a food is, is, is dense with nutrients doesn't mean that our bodies with our incredibly inefficient digestive tracts have complete access to all the nutrients inside, especially when it comes to plants, plants, nutrients, many of them are not only, um, not only come with a whole bunch of toxins we have to negotiate and deal with and all this but they're they're trapped within incredibly tough cell walls that our digestive tracts are not built to break down and get through so there's a whole host of nutrients we consume in plants that unless we process them properly pass directly through our bodies and leave out the other end fire is one of several different ways that we can break some of those plants down and have access to those nutrients. So fire was incredibly important. And, and, and so real, real quick with meat, one of the things he found is that yes, red meat in our diets, I'm not talking about the organs, the organs are incredibly nutrient bioavailable, but red meat is um, difficult for our human digestive tract to completely break down to derive all the nutrition from Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't eat it. In fact, eating meat and animals in general is partially what uh, uh, supported the body and brain growth that made us human, made us homo sapiens. But what he found was that processing the meat helped make the nutrients available to our bodies. And there's several ways to process it. One is, is physical. So um, if you just took, there's a, there's a big difference. If you took a half a pound of steak raw steak in a big chunk and we had to chew it, and eat it we would uh, our body would have to work a certain really really hard to get all the nutrition from it but if we took that and and either uh ground it up or sliced it incredibly thin and then ate it our bodies would our, first of all our jaws but also our bodies would have to work less hard to get the nutrition from it and it, and if you think about the way we eat in a in a modern like really nice restaurant red meat today it's either tartare or carpaccio tartare is ground up and carpaccio is sliced incredibly thin But what he then found was that if we cooked it a little bit and, you know, I've had uh, I've had the fortune of of being able to spend time with him and have some of these conversations. And one of the things he said was, you know, somewhere, you know, a burger that's cooked around medium or so um, will give up its nutrients more easily than a raw burger or a overdone burger. And so that combination of a, some grinding up to mechanically break it down and the cooking to chemically begin to release its nutrients is the, you know, what we can do as humans to maximize the amount of nutrients that are already in that meat to go into our bodies.
0: Mm. Interesting. So sometimes I hear the argument that um, humans were not designed to eat meat because we don't have carnivorous looking teeth. But what you're saying is, if you can cook and process the meat, you don't necessarily need to have that. Is that is that correct and safe to say?
1: 100 percent. And in fact, it, again, I'm glad you brought this up too. From my perspective, we're not designed to eat almost everything that we eat, right? We're, you know, most of the people that are most of the people that are make the argument that we're not as humans designed to eat meat because we don't have canines uh, to rip, you know, them apart or whatever, um, are the same people who are eating massive amounts of bread and my. Um because you know, it's usually coming from a you know a vegan or vegetarian standpoint, and my response is well you definitely aren't designed to plant harvest dry store grind ferment, and bake a loaf of bread inside of our bodies like we can't so you know the 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 answer to the to, to that statement is no, we don't have canines designed to rip flesh off of carcasses on the african savannah but we haven't needed them for three and a half million years because in less than a second we can make a stone tool that's sharper than even you know the most meat-eating predator on the planet and no we we don't have a digestive tract specifically designed to um, fully digest raw hunks of meat but we don't need that because we have tools to physically break it down and we have things like fire to allow us to cook it. So that is in my mind, the essence of eating like a human. It's that understanding that comprehension that we don't have the physical ability to number one, acquire most resources from our environment without the help of technology. And even more importantly, we don't have the digestive tracts to safely and efficiently break down most of those resources to get the most amount of nutrition in our bodies where it needs to be without the help of technology. So for most of our our dietary past, our ancestors are creating technologies and behavior patterns that allowed them to access more and more and different nutrition from their environments and to transform that nutrition into its safest and most nourishing forms possible for our bodies. Mm. Other animals are designed to eat the diets that they eat, right? They have the canines to rip flesh off of carcasses. They have the claws that allow them to dig into the ground to get at tubers or whatever. And then they also have the digestive tracts that allow them to make the most of whatever the food is they're designed to eat. So cows have rumens that are fermentation chambers that allow them to break down really tough plant material like grass and and, and, and other tough tough vegetable materials and plants and things. You know, geese have crops and gizzard that are specifically designed so that they can safely and efficiently digest grains you know, right off the stalk. We don't have things like that. What we do as humans is do what other animals do inside their bodies. We do it outside of our bodies before we eat it. The problem is um, today, the modern food industry isn't very concerned with, with real food safety, real food nutrient density, and real food nutrient bioavailability. By availability, so food processing in the modern sense is a very negative thing, right? We process food at the for for other reasons, mostly monetary gain and other sorts of things, at the expense of safety and uh, and the nourishing qualities of food, and that's what we're trying to to overcome with the approach that we have. Wow,
0: eating like a human sounds nothing like most people's eating experience i mean i think of even going to the grocery store i'm going to go to the store like you said mostly muscle meat you're you're seeing chicken breast you're seeing you know lean red meats you're seeing pork um and all these fruits and vegetables that are available 365 days out of the year that i I can't go by blood and organs you don't see those cuts yet you're saying those are the those are the best ones that's the most nutrient dense foods i can eat what happened
1: a lot's happened, and there's there are, and it's really fascinating to um, to really historically look at what has occurred to create what we see at in the American grocery, really the modern grocery store shelves today. And if you, and there's there's a lot of different things, and I can give you a few, a few examples um, in, in just a second. But what I will say is that the changing items on the American grocery store shelf are uh, the fact that they're changing and and what they are is incredibly powerful, I think in a very negative way. But one thing we have to remember is that it, it not only represents what food we have access to, very, very easy access to, but it also represents how we think about food. And what is real food, right? Because, you know, I know that a lot of, a lot of people will, will listen to dietitians and doctors and nutritionists and the USDA and everybody else to figure out what their diet should be. But really, one of the most powerful influencers on how we think about food and what is food and make that sort of um, uh, decision about what is food and what isn't food is by what we see in the grocery store. Right. So if it's in the grocery store, by default, we probably think it's food. And if it's not, we probably think, well, it's not food. And that's a real issue when it comes to animals, because in terms of animals, almost the only thing we see in the grocery store is the meat. We've taken the offal, you know, the organs, we've taken the blood, we've taken a lot of the fat, demonized it. And it's been erased from our consciousness being food. Whereas what I'm suggesting is it, it's those things that literally built us as humans, fat, blood, organs, and certainly meat health. That's not a part, but, but though, and if that's even partially true, then there's a huge piece missing from our diets. So a couple examples of, of what happened in the grocery store. Um, again, there's a lot of different factors, but here's one uh, that was really spelled out. And Velisis wrote a book called um, uh, Kitchen Literacy. It's a fantastic book. And she, she spells this out much better than I'm going to be able to do here. But one of the things she, she, she um, uh, documents is what happens right after the Civil War. So you, you, right after the Civil War, the you know, Civil War ends in what, 1865. So in the, in the decades after the Civil War, um, here we're left with all these railroads across literally transcontinental railroads that uh, in, in some cases were built and maintained because of the war effort. We have you know this ability to ship food across the country and um at the same time we start having uh, the, the beginnings of what we now know as concentrated animal feedlot operations popping up in certain areas of the country areas that you would recognize like Chicago or Omaha or St. Louis areas that are still known for for their meat production and what was happening then is that they'd take these animals you know they'd raise them in these in these certain pockets of the country and then put them on the on these rail cars that worked but weren't as efficient as rail cars are today and ship them to different parts of the country where at that point, you know, local butch- abattoirs and butchers would kill the animals and cut them up and sell the meat and all this. Um, but what they found was they were losing massive amounts of money because that trip was so hard for the animals that at best, they were losing weight. And at worst, a lot of them were dying. So uh, what they decided now? Now we're at a time when okay, you know this isn't working really well. So maybe we can ship some of this, some of these parts of the animals with refrigeration, right? Because they were just starting to figure out refrigerated rail cars with ice. And again, it wasn't working really well. But they um, they would then take these concentrated animal feeding operations, and they'd also become the abattoirs and the butchers there as well. And so they would kill the animals, cut them up, and ship the pieces of the animals or halves of cattle you know, to to the different parts of the country. But what they found was that the, um, the refrigeration really wasn't that reliable. So the more perishable parts of the animal, which are the organs and the blood, didn't make the trip uh, very easily. So they just didn't concentrate on that, and they concentrated on the meat. And this resulted in several things – and this is even in the late 1800s, right, that we have – um, the consciousness of people in our own country was changing because, you know, they were getting rid of, there was not as much of a need for local butchers anymore. It was all happening in, you know, these, these several, these several pockets, the livers weren't making it on the rail car. So their perception of what the proper part of an animal to eat are, are, are just, is just the meat. And then, you know, at the same time, you have a bunch of immigrants coming in, um, from different parts of the world with these incredible traditional food ways that always included organs and, and 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 the the other parts of the animal and they're coming in and all of a sudden they're coming into a situation where the richer people in these areas, the people that they're trying to emulate are not eating any of these foods. They're only eating the most choice, what they consider the most choice cuts of meat. So at the same time those things are disappearing from our conscious, there's a, a sort of purposeful attempt to show status and and even raising status by concentrating on certain cuts of meat you know oh my gosh you know it's it's the old world it's the old it's the old way of of eating you know with all these other organs and we should be eating the same kind of thing that the guy at the top of the hill is, is eating so this is again just a few examples but a lot of these things are happening over time and over time and now we're at the situation we are now where if you want to eat an animal all of a sudden whether it's a it's on a menu or in a selection in the grocery store. It's almost exclusively
0: meat. So are you trying to tell me that my breakfast cereal that says that it's heart healthy and is part of this complete breakfast is not the healthiest food I can be eating. And they told me that so they could make a buck.
1: And, yeah, absolutely. I and am blown that away. Is as true as I did,
0: oh is. man. I am blown away. <laughs> Tell me what, what, what are some recommendations you have for people around eating? Because, you know, like we established earlier, we, we don't live in caves. We, we are farther removed from real animals. I mean, I, I eat a very highly carnivorous diet, but I'm also a hypocrite because I'm, I'm not the one out there hunting. I'm not killing the animal. I'm not processing the animal myself. What things do you recommend for people like me who want to eat a more nutrient dense diet, um, and how to reconcile that with our modern lives?
1: Great. Um, I'll tell you, the one hypocrite is a strong word because I don't think anybody hypocrite to me um, uh, conveys a message of intentionality, like the idea that somebody is saying this and doing this, almost knowing that there that there's this dichotomy between the the two different things. I I think it's a little bit strong. I think um, it's more there's there's something else out there. And the best thing we can do is make every effort possible to educate and empower ourselves to make the best decisions on a nutritional level, on a sustainability level, and also on an ethical level. And I, I talk about animals a lot because I think this is really the, the frontier and the place that we're at. There's never before in my mind been such a uh, a raging debate between vegans and vegetarians and carnivores and keto and all the other wait, all the other things that are at, I mean, it's almost like there's this is huge divide. And this, this is, these are my recommendations. The first one is, and this is going to sound strange talking on a, on a podcast where I'm scouting out all this nutritional information. I'm going to say the first thing is to not listen to anybody, but yourself. Right. And I know, but bear with me for a second. Um, one of the things I tell my students at Washington college all the time, is that there there is no transfer of information possible without the attachment of bias. There's always bias. I don't care if it's information that you're reading, if it's a lecture, if it's a a documentary, if it's a book, there's inherently bias in everything we do. And And that's okay, as long as we recognize it. There always is. And there certainly is, even with what I'm saying here. I have a I have a certain agenda. There's certain things that I think are incredibly important, and I'm going to say things in a way um, that will help justify my uh, my place uh, or my my take on these things. So first of all, understand there's always bias in everything. The bias that I have is because I have very strong feelings about nutrition and sustainability and ethical treatment of animals and the environment, all those other sorts of things. Um, So perhaps – you could make the argument that somebody coming from that perspective maybe has a little more credibility than most of the nutritional advice that we get that are coming from people who are just trying to make money. Um, and uh, you know, and, and if you if you trace back where that nutritional advice originally stems from, it's usually coming from something supported by a major food <laughs> producer, right? So um I'm gonna go out on a linear and try to make a correlation that's gonna sound really, really weird. But if everybody bears with me for a second, I think I can come around and it'll make a little bit of sense. I don't believe we at the root, I don't believe the root of the question we should be asking is what should we eat? I mean, it's a question we all eat. It's a question I've been trying to answer my entire life. It's the, you know, the question that we, we try to answer when we pick up a diet book or we go to a nutritionist or, or look for the USDA for advice or whatever it's, it's what should I eat? What should I just want to be healthy? What should I eat? And from my perspective, It's a question we don't need to ask. It's the wrong question, right? Most, you know, no other animal on the planet asks that question, what should I eat? But we as humans spend a lot of time and a lot of money hiring professionals to tell us how to eat. But at the same time, we remain the most sick, the sickest species on the planet because of how we eat. And I like to say the only other species on the planet that are even close to as sick as us because of how they eat are our pets or domesticated animals, and that's because we're screwing their diets up as well.
0: Right. We're the ones feeding them.
1: And we're the ones feeding them. And and trying to make these, you know, very high-end scientific decisions about how they should eat. But but meanwhile, all the wild animals are eating, all of them are eating the diets they're supposed to be eating without having to ask that question. And and here is why I think we don't need to ask that question, but we should be asking a different question. There's three things that in my mind are essential to doing the one thing that every species on this planet is designed to do, survive, reproduce viable offspring that in turn reproduce viable offspring. And if they can make that happen, the species survives. If something gets screwed up, then the species becomes extinct, right? Mm-hmm. So the three things that we need to do in order to make that happen, and every animal needs to do this, or every, every organism needs to do this, is to reproduce stay safe and nourish ourselves and our offspring those th- that's it and if we can do those things everything works so in my mind if you if you think about the experiences in your life that elicit the most amount of emotional and physical responses in our bodies right flood of emotions truly sensual experiences where literally every every sense every sense that you have sight, hearing, touch, all those things are heightened and at their at their most. And the responses to the situations flood us with the most amount of these responses. It's sex, danger, and food. Right. And and that's why in in other words, what I'm suggesting is that through through millions of years of evolution, nature and the whole the whole system has figured out how to reward us when we do those things the right way, and how to make sure we realize that we've done them wrong when we do them the wrong way. That's why sex, when it's done right, feels so incredible. That's why when we're in danger, we are scared and, and the, the, the hairs are standing up on our arms and we're listening more intently than we've ever listened to anything else in the, in, in the world, right? And, and, and all, of those, all of those things are happening. And when we eat food, it is such an entire body experience. That's it. So I'm convinced that if if we are in tune with our bodies and the way it reacts to food and we're faced with the opportunity to consume real food, we will inherently make the right decisions. We will start eating when we need to. We will stop eating when we need to. We'll eat more of something if we need it. We'll eat less of something if if we shouldn't have it. That's just like every other animal on the planet. So that requires again us to be in two other bodies and for us to be presented with real food processed the right way but let's just put that aside for just a minute and suggest that that's even partially true the question then is what is the question what is the thing that we should be asking and in my mind the thing that we should be asking is not what we should eat but it's how we should eat what we have done as humans over millions of years of technological innovation is we have literally outgrown our digestive tracts. We've out-eaten our digestive tracts. We are accessing foods, amazing foods, that only because of us accessing them, we were able to build the bodies and brains that we currently inhabit. We've been able to access these foods and process them to make them as safe and nourishing as possible. That's what we as humans do differently than other animals. That's what we need help with. That's the information that has been passed down through generations and from tribal leaders to other tribal leaders and from grandmothers to granddaughters and grandsons. That's the information that we need. That's inherently human. That's what we require in our diets and that's what's missing from modern food waste. So, uh, and it's been ripped away from us. At every stage in what we would consider a development in our diets from from gatherers to scavenger gatherers, to hunter gatherers, to food producers at the agricultural revolution, to food consumers since the industrial revolution um, in, the, in the beginning of that we've been more connected and more connected to our food and then beginning with the food production and then eventually the food you know us as food consumers we've been distanced more and more from not only where our food comes from but how it's prepared and it's that how it's prepared that is so incredibly crucial to creating nourishing diets that's where we need to turn to other people for advice and um, and instruction and, and, and those sorts of things. So my advice—that's a long-winded way of saying—you know—what do we do? How do we start to recapture this idea of eating like hum- like a human again, the way our ancestors did, in ways that that built us literally as, as humans, both biologically and culturally? It's to reconnect with our food at every single level possible. Now, this isn't to say that somebody who's living in the middle of an apartment in Manhattan that eats three meals a day out at restaurants should all of a sudden, you know, start foraging and hunting for their food and butchering on their countertop. I mean, that that's a huge drastic change. One I'd love to see happen, but it's not, um, it's not a requirement to take a step in the right direction that not only improves your health, but has literally global ramifications for nutrition sustainability and the ethical treatment of not only animals but our environment in general. And so even a small step I call it removing links from our food chain can be incredibly powerful. So as far as animals are concerned, one of the things that I that I like to suggest is look, let's start with the chicken. If if you're somebody or a family that, you know, eating an animal means going to the grocery store and buying chicken breast in the, in a the nice plastic styrofoam container and bringing it home and, and cooking it, well take a step and Buy a whole chicken. Like go to the grocery store and bypass that chicken breast and buy a whole chicken and buy the highest quality chicken possible. Take it home. Take that chicken apart on your countertop. It's the convenience of we 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 um how do I say this? We couch the fact that we don't have to think about the fact that an animal lived and died to nourish us as convenience. But I think it's uh, very very detrimental in, in a lot of different ways. Let's take that chicken home and literally take out the knife that you got for your wedding present that you never used hone it on the, on the steel, take that chicken apart on your counter, cook the chicken breast and do this, take the legs and do something else, take the carcass and throw it in a pot and make bone broth from it. Take the liver out and, 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 and the heart and cook those. That is a huge step. If you already buy a whole chicken from the grocery store, then go to the farmer's market or better yet the farm and actually meet the farmer that raise them. And even better than that, have the farmer, let the farmer meet your kids who are with you have, have that link between you and where your food comes from, be direct. And, you know, the cool thing is with a food that to me, that's the safest food system possible, where the person who's raising that animal and making decisions about the quality of the life of that animal realizes that those decisions impact the person whose face that they met that's a safe and incredible, you know, connected food system. If you're already doing that, you know, and and I know people um, think this is a crazy idea. Buy half of a pig, like I can get a half a pig at my local butcher from a local pig for a, a hundred and thirty five dollars. It will feed my family for more than a month, and we make everything from all of our sausage to bacon to hams to pork rinds, render the lard, mm-hmm. all of it. Um, so it is. A um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's an incredibly uh, economic way of doing things, and a great way to support local butchers, abattoirs, and farmers. But it also allows everybody in your house to realize where the parts that they're eating actually come from, and 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 correlate in their heads that an animal walked on this earth, and, you know, ate, lived, died, and then became. Whatever it is on their plate, that's going ahead and nourishing them. And th- these are powerful, powerful things that are missing from our modern grocery stores and our modern kitchens and our modern you know, dining tables. And then you know what? If you do all those things, yet yeah, go fishing, go hunting. You don't have to go hunting for all of your food, but go out. Even if you, even if you don't want to pick up a gun or a bow, go with somebody that you trust, that's safe, that does these things. Spend a day out in the field and watch what that process really means um, in the hands of somebody that's, that's skilled and, and ethical. Mm. It'll completely transform the way you think about these things.
0: Wow. You mentioned some really powerful feelings. I think gratitude would be pretty close to the top of the list of what you would gain from realizing this was a life. Something has to die. If I have to eat anything, let's honor this animal, let's honor this life, whatever it was.
1: hundred percent. I've said it, I've sat at people's tables where they've put massive amounts of meat out on the table. I mean, in the form of hamburgers and hot dogs and sausage and brisket and bacon and all these, literally hundreds of animals, pieces from hundreds of animals have been taken apart and put back together to feed the family or to feed this particular table. I'm not talking about anybody in my family, but I mean, I've sat at tables like this, which is, which is fine. But then somebody, usually me, brings up something about a farm or an animal and all of a sudden the reaction at the table is one of disgust and and whoa no we're not going to talk about that let's just enjoy our meal without thinking about that but meanwhile in our house uh the way that we approach it you know and again we do a lot of hunting and, and, and things in our in our house as well but uh, in our house but and quite often the meat on the table is something that me or my son has has, has harvested but it's not uncommon for us to sit there at the table and, you know, we're eating some venison that, you know, Billy, uh, my son, maybe shot the the year before. And and he's like, dad, remember that deer? Remember that night? And that deer was doing this. And then this happened and then this happened and this happened. Remember how that that deer ran across the field. That's not irresponsible. That's not um, uh, rash. That's not disgusting. That's, that's beautiful. That's part of it. My son just remembered, that that animal was literally running across the field. He also remembered that he was the one responsible for ending that animal's life, but he also remembers that he did everything he could to make the most of that animal. And our family is being nourished that very moment because of all of those actions. That is a beautiful, a beautiful way to approach eating animals in my mind.
0: Wow. Beautiful. That's a, that is a really good word to describe that. Um, let's take a quick break and I've got a few more questions for you before we close this out. going to ask you a question that i actually already know the answer to um but i'm just going to ask it to you i'm going to answer the question because i know exactly how it is even though i live in the suburbs of salt lake city i've watched some national geographic um you've actually had the opportunity to live with groups of humans indigenous populations that we haven't necessarily farmed over or you know shoved bibles down their throats um The question is, the question is, what is it like to live with humans the way they have always been? And the answer to that question is they live a miserable life. They're always hungry. They work all day. Um, They never have enough food. Um, They die early. Average lifespan is much lower. They have no leisure time. They run from tigers all day until they get eaten. And it's a really barbaric and terrible existence. So again, all I need you to do is just say, yep, that's exactly what happens. That's how humans live.
1: That's exactly the message that everybody gets about <laughs> <laughs> about indigenous and traditional communities, especially hunter-gatherers no c- certainly uh, you I, as, as you know and I'm, that was a great setup. Thank you so much for that <laughs> the the unique thing about it, the unique thing about living and working with a lot of the indigenous and traditional people that I that I've spent time with is that it is the exact opposite on every single point that you make. There's this uh, misperception that, you know, our ancestors and also people living uh, in these indige- indigenous communities uh, are, are, you know, have a much shorter lifespan. And first off, that is not true. That is very not true. It, it, and, I, and I hate to see that repeated over and over again in the news and in the media and the literature. Um, it's, there, there's two, there's a couple of different points I'd like to make very quickly about that, because that is the thing most people are always hung up on. First off, um, it is true that the average lifespan of our ancestors is lower, not by a ton, but lower than a modern lifespan in, a, in somewhere like, say the Americas. However, that is mostly because of the high death rate, excuse me, of, of infant humans. Now, you have to understand, now all of a sudden, everybody could just say, well, that's, and first of all, that skews the entire equation over to one side. And it sounds terrible, but remember, what we need to understand is that we gave up a lot as humans to grow these incredibly large brains. And in fact, we have maximized the size of the head that can fit through the, you know, the female pelvis when we give birth Mm -hmm. and it can't get any bigger. In fact, it's, it's, it's at that point where it's almost too big. Human female, you know, human births are the most painful and dangerous
0: of any animal on the planet. And it's because of that reason. Now what we've, what, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Okay. Just, just real quick while you're on that topic real quick. Um, Is this why a human baby is basically worthless when they come out? I mean, no offense if there's any babies listening to this, but a human baby can't do much where I see other animals. Those babies can, can, you know, start walking the day they're born. Is that
1: a hundred percent? That's exactly the other part of it. So we've through evolutionary processes, uh, humans are are giving birth to the Biggest brains possible, letting, letting as much of that development happen inside of the mother uh, that can happen to still allow that baby to pass through a pelvis that allows the mother to be, you know, be, you know, still be able to walk. So we figured all that, or it's been figured out for us, but at the same time, the downside of that equation is, or the downside of that situation is that we give birth to incredibly helpless babies. I mean, we think they're cute and all that way. I get that, but they're helpless. Like if we left that baby alone, it would die compared to other animals, like a baby a baby horse, like you said, walks within an hour, you know, or something like that. So what, um, but meanwhile, we have an extended period of infancy in our human babies. And during that time, what happens is that the rest of the brain growth that would have happened inside of the mother is happening outside of the body. And to allow that to happen, we require a cultural system set up where we have mothers and grandmothers and parents and all this to take care of and protect that baby during this incredibly crucial time in its life. So um, that said, we give birth to incredibly, um, incredibly weak and and um, and uh, babies that are that can die, and many of them did, especially in the past at a very young age. So if we take that part of the equation or take that situation out of the equation, and say, okay, any human baby that lives to say age five. What's the average lifespan? Well, all of a sudden, that number gets adjusted to quite high, and, and it, it, it's hard to tell. And we're making a blanket statement of, about humans across time and place. But we're talking, you know, much higher in the say the seventies than what most people would think of as you know what our ancestors would live through. So that that's out of the, you know, let's take that out of you know the equation part of the equation out of it for a minute. Uh, another another thing that I really think we need to come to terms with is it are we living longer today as modern say americans or are we dying longer what is the quality of life during the last 10 20 sometimes 30 years for a lot of you know modern americans you know what what is it like when they're 60 or 70 or 80 is it is it life is it living or are they just alive mm-hmm. you know when you look at indigenous groups and communities the ones that are really living the way humans are meant to live they live incredible lives and keel over dead. I mean, it's like they're living to the moment that they die and then they die. That's how I want to be. Whether it's 70 years old or 110 years old, I want to live my best life until it's no longer time for me here and then I keel over dead instead of spending you know, 30 years living in, 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 a, in a different way. That's what their life was like. That's what their life is like and that's what our lives can be again. Now imagine if we paired living like that and all the nutrition involved with living a life like that with modern medicine i'm not suggesting that modern medicine is all bad what i'm suggesting is modern medicine isn't a replacement for poor lifestyle choices for poor dietary habits modern medicine and this is partially what you know the approach that we have what eating like a human really means it's not just eating you know insects in a cave it's it's taking lessons from the past fusing them with lessons from the present and creating a future that's better than our species has ever known. So pairing modern medicine with good dietary and lifestyle choices can allow us to live longer than we've ever lived. But today I would suggest we're dying longer than we ever have. Wow. Um, hunter gatherers. And we got to remember too, most hunter gatherers that are uh, still around today, like Hods uh, are a great example um, in, in places like Tanzania. They're great models for the way that we think our ancestors lived, but at the same time, they're dealing with a lot of other issues that our ancestors didn't. For example, um, they've been the, the modern hunter-gatherer groups have been pushed out of you know the most fertile, best land has been taken over by farmers and in, in modern communities and cities, and they've pushed these hunter-gatherers further and further into marginal uh, environments. So they're still making a living by hunting and gathering. But it's more difficult than it's ever been because they're they're living in areas where it's difficult to do these things. But even with that, they're uh, they are in, incredibly healthy. They live incredible, productive, amazing lives. And believe it or not, they have more leisure time than any modern American could ever
0: imagine. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, I'd like to close this out a little bit differently. We normally have some um, specific questions to ask at the end, but I would love to know specifically who, what was your favorite group of people to live with and be around when you look back on your career and all the amazing, wonderful adventures you've been able to have? What are your most fond memories?
1: There's a, there's a ton. And I really, I really hope, um, I'm able to continue to, when the world opens up again, to continue to to have these experiences and meet such amazing groups and, and, and people because, uh, in fact, it's just its just been that incredibly rewarding that I hope it isn't just always talking about the past, it's talking about the future people I get to meet. But I'll say this. Um, there has never been a group of, of of people that me and my family have spent time with um, that we didn't walk away feeling, you know, just incredibly connected and, and, and so thankful for the opportunity to spend time with these people. And in fact, thankfully, through the social media, um, we have we're in direct access with most of them still, and and I mean from the most remote group you could ever imagine, um, we still get contacted by you know Maasai and Samburu, uh warriors from Kenya, um, people in Mongolia. I mean it's it's amazing, wow. but it, it really truly is. In fact, when we were with the Hadza, um, the there was only one phone in the entire group and you would think in being in such a remote area the issue would be a signal but it wasn't they actually had a fine signal the problem was batteries they had, they had no electricity or anything like this so it's really funny this this kid this, the the chief, uh, this chief's son um had a phone and the only the only two things that they bought from the modern world were uh, was a ground up maze to make a, a dish called dugali and which didn't compromise a, a, a comp- comprise much of their diet but they did buy some maize or corn and marijuana. Uh, <laughs> two <laughs> things that they bought and everything else they hunted and gathered for themselves. But um so uh, you know once a month once every two months somebody would take the incredibly long trip to town to get to, you know which was which was by car you know a 7 hour ride so i can only imagine how long it took them to get there. Wow. But uh he he charges phone And you would get a slew of messages from this guy for like a day and a half. And then boom, (laughs) nothing for six weeks because he had no power. It was fascinating. But anyhow, to to more directly answer your question, everybody's been fantastic. And I I don't mean that to be a throwaway answer. It's it's just that it's more to relay the uh, understanding that humans are just absolutely incredible. We take away the BS and the politics and all the rest of it, when you get down to just the root of being human and people that are living in that world, it, they're just incredible. Um, but I will say the group of people that, that I really, how do I say this without devaluing others? I, I was amazed, amazed with um, the uh, Mongolian herders out of, out of the Mongolian steppe. I, there wasn't a moment that I turned around and wasn't fascinated by their skill set and the way that they adapted um, in the midst, in some cases, of hardly any resources. What the, the way that they butchered animals like yaks, the way that they, you know, in seconds, we were we were in a situation we needed a, 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 a I don't know much about horses, but we needed a bridle or you know thing to go over the, the horse's head for you know to and, and to hold it and like gallop away sort of thing for this horse and. Um, we were out in the middle of nowhere with these camel herders, and this guy looks at his wife and they kind of had this twinkle in their eye and they walked away and brought back this bag of camel hair. It was, just, it was huge. It was like a 55 gallon drum size bag of camel hair. Wow. And I watched in less than 10 minutes this guy and his wife, they stood opposite one another, were feeding this camel hair out of the bag to one another. She was twisting it, he was braiding it and, and, and knotting it. And I mean, it, it looked like a magic show. In ten minutes, felt like ten minutes. I don't know exactly how long it was. Um, he hands over to me this thing that fit directly on the horse's head perfectly, and I literally jumped on and, and rode away. It was fascinating. Wow. Um, the way that again, the way that they butchered animals and made use of resources, and it was just, it was just amazing. And I really valued um, everybody who, every group I've ever spent time with that. Uh, Either hunts or raises and kills and butchers their animals, highly prize the organs over the meat, just like our ancestors started doing around 2 million years ago. Um, But perhaps that was most evident um, in, in Mongolia.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. Bill, I could I could talk to you for twenty hours <laughs> and still um, not have enough. I really appreciate um, your time, which I want to be respectful for today. Um, can you tell us anything you're currently working on or anything you're particularly passionate about these days? Sure,
1: absolutely. A couple of things. So first off, I am so excited to announce that my book is um, will pre will hit the hit the shelves for pre order, hit Amazon for pre order. In March, It's called Eat Like a Human. Um, working right now to put the finishing touches on it. Uh, it's getting published uh, through Little Brown, which is a fantastic publisher. So I'm super excited about that. That's going to have a ton of information, ton of stories like we, we heard today, uh, a ton, chock full of recipes and techniques. So, I'm, I'm again, I'm super excited about that. On top of that, um, we just launched, uh, my wife has been hard at work. We just launched our, our new website, eatlikeahuman.com. It's great. I'm it's great. there. Have you looked at it? Oh, oh awesome. yeah, it's
0: awesome. It's great.
1: And one of the things we're working really hard to do is we like to say um, the, you know, the work that we're doing can be most beneficial if we can inspire, empower and nourish the community. So the inspiration in my mind comes from being able to uh, relay these stories and talk about our dietary past and how it literally built us as humans, biologically and culturally. The empowerment comes by getting people back into their kitchens and, and, and learning. In my mind, the best edu- if you want to learn about your food, the best way to do it is to cook it yourself entirely from scratch at least one time mm. uh, because after all it is that processing that allows the food to be as safe and nourishing for our human bodies as possible so we just we're in the midst of still filming a bunch of them but we just started releasing some of our virtual classes i love teaching in person the most but certainly COVID has thrown a wrench into some of that um we have a sourdough bread class a fermented dairy class uh, out right now virtual you know downloadable and also uh, we're we should be releasing any day uh uh, basic of, of, of cheese making where we are in the midst of filming fermentation classes and butchering classes and use of waffle and all those sorts of things. And the cool thing about those classes is that they're not just a cooking class. They are, but there's so much more. There's, uh, we weave in stories. We talk about our ancestral diets. We talk a lot about equipment, how to make these things manageable in our own kitchens. Um, so uh, we're working on all of those things all at the same time.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. They're very well done. Your website's really well done. You guys put so much really cool information out there. And I I like what you said. It's not just the information. It's not just you're going to learn how to cook, but we're going to get some stories and techniques and all that other stuff. I think that's just so, so important. Um, Well, listen, uh, really, really appreciate your time today. What is is one thing that you'd like somebody to walk away from this conversation with?
1: Taking control of your food and diet. And health is within your grasp you know no matter who you are or where you are there are steps that you can take that can accomplish two things at the same time number one it can make you healthy and more connected and number two it will it is the beginning of uh of a movement that literally can transform the way the world not only eats but deals with with, with its environment. And, you know, I don't want to, uh, um, I want to make sure everybody realizes that they, uh, they don't have to abandon everything that they're doing to make a difference in their diets or in their, in their world. It can be these very simple steps that are incredibly meaningful. Again, the way you think about purchasing the meat that you buy, the, the way that you process um, process vegetables in order to make them as safe and nourishing as possible. And something as simple, and I know we didn't talk about this, but just I me, mean, 30 seconds, I promise it won't take long. Um, this, I, I do think for anybody eating meat, butchering and, and hunting is incredibly powerful ways to connect at the most visceral level possible. But that's not the only way to uh connect with where your food comes from in your environment directly another way to do it uh is is through foraging and you don't need to live in the middle of the woods in wyoming to forage my favorite foraging classes that i teach are in the middle of washington dc and we even forage on a long on of the capital, right? Cause I want to show wow. people that on the most manicured lawn in the world, there is, there is some of the food that is the most nutritious food possible is, is sitting there. You <laughs> know, nutritious plants possible is still even in those lawns, it's not just a bunch of grass. And um, so this is something that no matter where you live is in an, an incredible way to connect with your environment, eat hyper seasonally and ha- access free food for, for for you and your family.
0: That's amazing. It's so approachable and simple and anybody can start with where they are and what they're doing currently. And, and, um, like you said, just take a simple step to take, take one step to get a little bit closer to your food, wherever you are on the spectrum and to, to, to appreciate food more and, and, and see your health improve because of that. I think it's just, it's so empowering and inspiring. Uh, Dr. So Bill Shinless this has been amazing. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for appearing on our show and for the content. And we will link to your website on the um, show notes. And I would just strongly encourage our listeners to go over and check out some of your work because it is incredible. So thank you very, very much. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, take care. This is Casey Ruff. This has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. We'll talk to you soon.